can be seated. Super glad to see you guys this morning. He is worthy, indeed. He is. Man, what a joy to get to proclaim that with you today. My name is Nathan, and I'm one of the pastors here. Glad to see you guys. Yeah, he's worthy of all praise. It's okay. He's worthy of honor and glory. And whatever we've been doing with our lives throughout this week, this moment is one where we get to return to that reality, where we together would say he's worthy of everything that we could bring before him. He's worthy of our attention. He's worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our lives, of every single moment. Bellwether Church is a rescued people who love and serve God in the world. And so this moment when we come together is a moment where we remind ourselves that we do love him that our affections towards him um, go in every space of our lives, that he's worthy. And so today we're going to be in Luke chapter 19. That's where we're going to be in just a moment. If you'll go ahead and turn there, we'll be there shortly. A few things I want to let you know about before we get to the sermon today. Um, First of all, if you're new here and you're a guest, we would love to have your information Um, There's a a card in the seat back in front of you. It looks like this. You can fill that out and drop it into the give boxes to the right and to the left of the doors on the way out. And we promise to contact you in a respectful way. We especially want you to know that you're welcome today. You have been prayed over. We've prayed over this service that every person who gathers in this place would be welcomed by the spirit of Jesus Christ, that you would be blessed by him. And so if people around you are welcoming, that's our, that's our MO here. We want to be a welcoming people, friendly. If the people around you are not friendly, they're probably guests too. So just reach out to them and say hello to them. Fill this out and let us know that you're here. Second thing is this, we've got cards that you can give to your neighbor to invite them to, to this Holy Week. We've got Good Friday service at 6.30 on Friday. Um, We'd love to see you there. We're going to worship King Jesus and acknowledge what he did accomplish when he declared it is finished. We just sang a song about how good that words of Jesus, the voice of Jesus declaring it is done, it's finished. And so we're going to acknowledge all that he accomplished on on the cross, suffering in our place for sins and worshiping him Friday. And then Easter Sunday, two services, 9 and 1030. We'd love to have you here. You can RSVP online. Invite your to come to that. And then lastly, there's a devotional book that we've got. We've got enough for every family to pick them up, or if you've got kids, to get enough for your kids to follow along. Um, they're on the way out. This is going to cover uh, each day of Holy Week, and it's covering a um, one of the moments where Jesus Christ declared, I am. I'm the bread of life. I'm the light of life. And it goes through the Holy Week events of the week with questions. It's a great prompt for you, and I hope that it'll be a benefit to you and your family as you seek to worship Jesus, not just in this space, but wherever you are scattered this week. Now, as uh, we've already mentioned, today is Palm Sunday, uh, a Sunday we remember when Jesus came into the city of Jerusalem and people hailed him as king, and some of them questioned who he was. And so if you are in Luke chapter 19, we're going to read that in just a moment. Um, But as we get there, we're going to be looking at what does it mean for us to celebrate on this Palm Sunday what the crowd acknowledged Jesus. There was a group of people that were surrounding him, hailing him as king, as the king from the line of David. And this was not the first time that Jesus would have entered this city. And so I want you to imagine as Jesus approached the city, this would have been a place that he was very familiar with, a road that he had traveled from the time he was a youth. 
At one point, he was brought there as an infant to be dedicated. And, and there were prophets and prophetess that had, sit there, they had sat there waiting for years, longing for the redemption of Israel. And when they saw Jesus, they said, now the day has finally come. Now, that was Jesus as an infant. And for years, he had come back to this city and celebrated festivals and sacrifices. And they had seen, some had been waiting and had seen Jesus from afar, longing for him to come. They knew that God wasn't finished with Israel and Israel had a long story and a long history of repentance and return and, and uh, drift as we talked about last week. And now they found themselves in another season where they were slaves to Rome. They were occupied by Rome. Their hope for redemption for Israel was that there would be a great leader, possibly a military leader that would again lead them and rescue them from this Roman oppression. And they were longing for peace, as I know many of you who come into this room are longing for peace. The peace of Rome had come. Uh, they called it the Pax Romana. And for 200 years, the Roman government would prosper and the peace that they offered was basically a piece of conquest. They said, look, if you will give us your taxes and you don't make any qualms about it, we'll give you peace. We're going to protect you. But it was a peace where they could not uh, worship God as he intended. The Pharisees had come into power during that time. And that peace that they longed for was one where Israel had its rightful place in Jerusalem. So the people were longing for redemption for, for a Messiah to come. And Jesus has been teaching and healing miraculous signs and wonders. And there are those who continue to be amazed with his power. This guy truly, hopefully, will bring peace. That's what they're hoping for. Maybe there'll be true peace, not empty peace that the government had promised. And there's such a great divide between how the people are responding to his teaching there were some who embraced him and adored him, and there were some who felt threatened by him, others who hated him. And today, there's still a great divide around what we do with King Jesus. And at this point, Jesus knows that his death and resurrection is coming. It's fast approaching, and the climax of God's redemptive narrative is about to unfold before everyone who would witness it. Jesus believed that his death would be the only hope of peace with God. And the Pharisees believed that Jesus' death would be the only hope of peace with the Roman government. In fact, the high priest Caiaphas had prophesied that unless Jesus died, there would be no peace for Israel. And in John, that's how his prophecy is written. He says that unless this one man dies for the whole of Israel, there was not going to be any peace. He saw Jesus as a threat to the peace politically, Jesus knew that his death would be the peace of salvation coming to those who would believe. And so if you can imagine this crowd gathered around hailing him as king and the division that this would have caused, the ruckus, the threat to their political peace that Jesus would have brought, there's a few parties that we're going to consider as we walk through this passage. Those that hailed him, those who opposed him, and Jesus Christ, who he is. And I want to consider those parties as we read this passage, starting in verse 29. Would you read along with me? It's going to be on the screen. And when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. 
untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven, glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because... You did not know the time of your visitation. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this, your word. We believe it has things for us today to, re- to hear and respond to. And I pray that today, as we listen to these stories about how you entered Jerusalem, that we, as those who welcomed you, would hail you as king here today that we would declare once again, not just with our words, but with our very lives, that you are worthy that you would come and bring peace. That is our hope, God. There's so many attempts to find peace today, and I pray that today you would bring yourself as this this glad gift for us to receive as our peace that you alone can offer. And I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. There's a question that C.S. Lewis asks in his essay that has the same title, and it's this. What are we to make of Jesus Christ? What are we to make of Jesus Christ? That's a question I want us to ponder for a moment before we walk through this passage. What are we to make of him? Who is he? What do we do with him? And Lewis says that that question, as important as it is, is somewhat comedic because it's this it's as silly as considering how a fly would consider what an elephant and how an ele- what he's to do with an elephant. It's somewhat silly, right? Because the real question is not, what do we do with Jesus? But the real question is, what does he do with us? What does he do with us? Because, and in just a minute, we're gonna ask that question. But first, I wanna ask this question because the answer to the second question depends on the first. What do we make of Jesus Christ? What do we do with this worthy one who enters into this place? He's very much alive. His Holy Spirit is very much working today. And we, we, whether we welcome him or not, he's here. He's present. And this question is important. What do we make of him? What do we do with him? And so I want to consider what these two parties do with him. The first one, those who welcomed him, and then those who rejected him. First, the multitude of Jesus' disciples who welcome him into the city. 
They surround him with loud rejoicing. Again, look, all the way through Nehemiah, I was so impressed with how loud the people were when they started praising the, the God that had saved them. They are making a ruckus. They're making a noise. And there's more people adding to the number because in this group, I want to consider who's in this party, okay? This group of people are described in John chapter 12 as those who had witnessed the power of God. So first, they're witnesses to God's power. And then there's some in this crowd who not only witnessed it with their own eyes, they had heard other people talking about it and they had seen Lazarus. This is a really important uh, uh, fact about the group of people gathered there. Many of them had heard about what God had done with raising Lazarus from the dead. In John chapter 12, it says this, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Again, you see these two crowds and within the crowd of those who welcomed him were two groups, some who had seen his power, others who had heard of his power. And so in this crowd today, there's some of you have witnessed the power he has over the grave, the power that he has over dead hearts to bring them from death to life. And some of you in this crowd are like Lazarus. You walk around as a living testimony of God's power. You walk around as people can see you and they're like, what in the world has happened to them? They've been transferred from darkness to light. And that's what Lazarus was. And Lazarus was such a threat to the Pharisees. Not only was Jesus a threat, while they're plotting to kill Jesus, they also say, look, we've got to get rid of Lazarus. They're looking to kill him as well. They've got to get rid of him because they wanted no evidence that Jesus Christ had this kind of power. So what did they say? What are they saying with their words? There's loud praise and rejoicing because they've seen dead men raised to life. They've seen blind people healed. They've seen those that are lame walking. They've seen all of these presentations of God's power through Jesus. And they're saying, what, what else could we do but follow this man? To hail him as the one who's obviously going to deliver us. They praise him loudly and they cry out Hosanna, which is contained in the other gospels. But Hosanna as as uh, Mason's already said, it just means God save us. You're the God who saves us. You're our deliverer. In the same way that they had been looking for deliverance back in Nehemiah that we just walked through, they're looking for deliverance from the Pax Romana. They're looking for real peace that, that Christ would come and set up his kingdom here. And so they're hailing him. And as they wave these palm branches, which would have been a national sign for Israel, every time that they went into the festivals, they would have raised these palm branches saying we remember what God has done and we long for what he'll do. And there's young and old that are gathered there. There's not only those who've witnessed and who've heard, there's also people that are young. In Matthew 21, it tells this story of those hailing him as Hosanna and saying, praise be the King of David. The Pharisees are upset about it again because the mouth of children are crying out Hosanna in the temple. When Jesus gets to the temple, there's kids surrounding him. So kids, look, those that were present, that were young, their praise was not excluded from the crowd. They were saying with those that were young and old, they were saying, Hosanna, this is our king. This is the one who's come to deliver us. And what did they say? Look, we've seen these marvelous things. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This also would have provoked lots and lots of memories. This is a quote from Psalm 118, which would have been used daily in their halal. When they opened the worship of God in the temple, they would have brought, uh, they would have started with singing the halal, Psalm 118. 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. All of these things would have been incredibly familiar, but it would have been ringing true. This is what we've been longing for. This is the moment we've been waiting for. Maybe this is it. And what they did when they took off their cloaks and they threw them on the ground and they waved palm branches and threw them before him, they were, this was an act of recognition. They were saying, we recognize who this is. They welcomed him into the city, recognizing his authority over even death and life. They recognized his authority and his worth and his origin. This man didn't come from us. He had to have come from heaven. This is God's salvation sent to us. And so how should we respond to him? They recognized him as who he said he was. They agreed with him. And then what did they do? In this act of taking their cloaks and throwing them on the ground, it's homage, it's submission. They're saying, we submit to him as the king who will lead us. He's the one. The palm branches and all the other gospels, all of it is saying, he's the one we've been waiting for. The witnesses of his power, those who had heard of his power. And this is the natural response to greatness. So let me, let me just... Put this forward as an argument to us today. If we have indeed witnessed his power, this will be the natural response. We long to ascribe value to something. In Glory Hunger, J.R. Vassar writes this. He says this, Giving glory is a natural human response to witnessing greatness. Which is why our world is infatuated with celebrities. We're addicted to greatness. When we see it, we ascribe worth and value to it. In other words, if we see God as he is, if God allows us this privilege of seeing his power, our natural response would be to say, he is valuable, he is worthy, he is worth more than anything. So I want to ask you this question before I move on, uh, because I, I think this is a really important question as we consider who is this Jesus Christ. Have you witnessed his power? Have you seen what he can do? Because those who witnessed him raising Lazarus from death to life, they had come before him and they had brought others with them saying, Hosanna, this is the God who will save us. And every moment, every moment that we live is a moment where we can welcome this living God. He's already present. He's already here. The question is whether or not we recognize his nearness. Do you know him as the God who saves? Have you witnessed his power when they came, they saw what he had done, and they saw it as a serious threat. They were already plotting to kill Lazarus. And, and I wondered, do you see him working? Do you long for him coming and working again? Are you full of hope for what his arrival might mean? It's likely different than what you'd expect. Here's what I mean. Most of those who were hailing him as the king expected a completely different deliverance than what he brought. In so many ways, they longed for him to show up in power. And he kept saying, my kingdom is not of this world. It's different than what you expect. Some of us long for God to deliver us, but I promise you, sometimes it's going to look different than whatever you think deliverance will look like. Because his description of deliverance, his description of peace, will be different than how we would describe it. The people that were longing for him to deliver them from Rome, he had a different deliverance. And it was much greater, it was much more profound, and it transcended whatever circumstance they were, they were going to endure. So have you seen him coming? Do you long for his arrival? Because Jesus is still moving today. He's still working. He's still alive. And the reason this question is important is because not everyone in the crowd welcomed him. Not everybody that was there was glad to see him. You definitely want to be part of the crowd that's raising your hosannas and laying down your cloak 
and waving palm branches in hopes of deliverance. But you should, and we should, be invited into this question. Would we have been part of the crowd who would have accepted him and welcomed him and hailed him as our king? Or would we be part of the crowd that rejected him? Because they were also present. Let's consider what this, this second part of the crowd looked like. Look at Luke 19.39. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Make this stop. Make it stop. And by this point, they knew that Jesus' power was growing. His influence was growing. And they were doing everything they could to stop him. And they're even pleading with Jesus, make this stop. Make it stop happening. They tell him in the temple, you should rebuke these children. And he says, no, have you not ever heard? From the mouths of infants, praise will come. He, he knows that the praise is the right thing to be happening. He maintained a place of authority within the Roman rule. And because of Jesus' coming, their place of comfort and security was going to be threatened. Have you ever felt like Jesus arriving on the scene was going to take something away from you? Because his invitation is to pick up your cross and die to yourself and to lay down your life. And in all those ways, these people that were rejecting him were threatened by him. They were saying, look, we do not want the peace that he will bring because it will, it will strip us of the peace that we temporarily have. <clears throat> the exaltation of Christ sometimes might make you feel a little nervous in your standing in the world. And that's what these Pharisees felt. They already had a plot to kill Jesus, to kill Lazarus, and those who missed Jesus' visit stood there rejecting him, saying, make this stop. Because in the middle of this scene, you've got both parties in the crowd and you have Jesus in the center of it. He's the center of this story. And what I would argue today is that he's the center of this story that we're living in right now. He, he already is, whether we acknowledge him or not as the center of it. And everybody longs to be the central character in their story. And how can you deny it, right? Every single scene that you've ever lived, you were the center character of it. There's never been a scene of your life where you were not part of it. The natural assumption is that, that this world is a story about yourself. And Jesus shows up on the scene and says, this is a story about me and my redemption. And it strips you from that, that delusion of thinking that everything in the world revolves around you. And it can be completely uncomfortable for anyone who hasn't come into contact with the God of the universe. But when you, when you meet him, it will strip you from the reality, that the delusion that you think this world is revolving around you. And each of us has this same disposition, this self-centeredness, where we see ourselves as the central character. So when you look back on your life, <clears throat> it's natural to see yourself as center because you are in every scene. Everybody else comes in and out of the scenes with you in it. But Jesus shows up and says, this is about me. And Jesus is inviting all of us to see him as the central character. So let's take this opportunity and look at it for a moment. Those who are praising him and welcoming him as that central character and those who are rejecting him. And this is more difficult than we think. Ray Ortland says it like this. You know the perfect storm? It's not when you fail, but when you succeed and you finally get your perfect life with you at the center. It's the poison of your kingdom coming and your will being done. Here's, here's the great risk, especially in the South, that we would get everything that we want out of life and Jesus still wouldn't be the central character in it. That is the great risk to us. 
Because here, cultural Christianity exists. It is a thing. And if we do not see it, that means we're part of it. There are those who can't even see that we're getting everything we would want. We're missing the most important thing of all, Jesus Christ. In his book, Glory Hunger, uh, J.R. Vassar, again, he says it like this. This is another great risk for those that are even living their life for Christ. Personally, on a big picture level, I know and delight in the preeminence of Jesus and have yielded my life to that reality. But on a granular level, I still find myself competing with Jesus for glory. I do things Jesus desires with the motivations Jesus despises. Let that be a warning for everyone who loves to play the role myself included. So we look at him and consider what does it look like to follow this King Jesus, this triumphant King who walks into the city? What does he look like? First, he looks like humility. This is a prophecy being fulfilled and it's included in the other gospels from Zechariah. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation as he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. In other words, he's coming. He's coming to you, but it's not maybe like you think. He's humble before you. And so for those that were wanting a victorious military leader, here he comes in riding on a colt, which is a sign of peace. Maybe some of them are thinking, why aren't you riding in on a big horse? He's humble before him, humbly and worth, his worth is displayed on a donkey. Isn't that interesting? That he comes to us in a cradle at his birth in a manger. That he comes to us in this entry in Jerusalem on a colt that had never been ridden before. And he welcomes their worship. He tells, he rebukes not his worshipers, But the Pharisees, and he says, even the rocks and stones would cry out. He's saying, look, what they're doing is right. The praise that they're offering is the right thing. I'm not going to rebuke them. Jesus is the only person in the universe who when he is worshiped and he invites you to worship him, it is right. Here's what I mean. For anyone else, If they were saying, hey, praise me, see my great worth, see who I am, it would be conceited, right? It would be really strange for anyone. But for Jesus, he gladly receives their exaltation because it is what we were all made for. You were made to enjoy his glory. You were made for something transcendent. And he's the only remedy to that empty space in your soul. He's the only one who's worthy of your attention and your gaze and your worship. And God is inviting us to join in the enjoyment with him of all creation that cries out in longing and exaltation to him. He's not only welcoming us to delight, he's encouraging our praise. So if you can imagine here in this sanctuary where we gather on a weekly basis to say who he is, when we declare he's worthy, he says, you're right. You're right, I am worthy. And he encouraged our our song. He is lifting up our praise with us in exaltation of himself. And he's the only being in the universe who's right to exalt himself, to declare that he's high and above every other in the world. That his rebuke was to say, no, if they do not, the rocks will cry out. I remember several years ago, I had a conversation with a friend of mine who's a Jehovah's Witness who did not believe that Jesus was to be worshiped. 
And we had a conversation about this particular passage where Jesus had every opportunity to stop them. He had an opportunity to say, no, it's not right for them to praise me. But when the crowd lifted up his praise, he said, yes, this is right. They're joining with all creation. The song that's been from the beginning of time that God himself will be exalted. When he had the opportunity to rebuke the children in the temple crying out, Hosanna, he didn't. He said, their praise is fitting. It's right. And then lastly, I want to see that not only was humble and worthy, but he was compassionate. Look at him as he looks over the city. He began to weep. He looks at them and says, you're missing it. You're missing the great opportunity for your redemption. And he wept over them. In Luke chapter 13, before this is another moment where he looks at the city and he, he describes his heart like this. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. He sees that they're missing it and he's not unmoved by it. He looks at the future condemnation, the judgment that's gonna come on Jerusalem and he begins to weep. He sees what they cannot recognize, that they're missing this great opportunity, this visitation of himself. And for those of you who are far from Christ and you're reluctant even now and you hear me describing him as the king of all creation, that he's worthy, and maybe there's some part of your heart that's going, I don't know, I'm not sure yet. Here's what I want you to imagine, that Christ in compassion looks at your future judgment with, with weeping. He takes no delight in your condemnation. He takes no delight in it. And for those who are parents who are weeping over a wayward child who wonder if they will ever come back to Christ, I want you to see Christ weeping with you as he looks at that child and says, I longed for, for them to see my visitation. For those of you who have lost loved ones and friends and family who do not know the redemption of Christ and you see that they're very, very far from him, I want you to witness his compassion. For those who do not know, he wept and said, how I would gather you together like a hen gathers her brood, but you would not receive me. He sees that they're missing it. He weeps over them. Know this, that Christ stands over all who would miss his arrival and looks in the same way, broken and sorrowful. but he is not unsure of who he is. In this moment, he knows who he is. That's why he's able to enter humbly on a donkey, why he's able to welcome their worship, why he's able to, to grieve over the city that would not receive him. And in all of it, he's answering the question, what do we make of him? And so I wanna ask you again that question. What do you make of Jesus Christ? He was never unsure of who he is. Never. Do you know him as Lord and Savior? If you do not, I want you to know he's alive today. And maybe there's something in you that's saying, hey, I want to believe this. That could be the Holy Spirit calling your heart right now. Maybe you're longing for your own deliverance or for the deliverance of those around you. When he comes, know that there will be two crowds some who gladly worship and receive him and some who reject him that he grieves over. Do you know him as Lord? Do you know him as your peace? Some of you have very clear pathways for what you think will bring you peace. Maybe it's financial stability. Maybe it's a job and a career. 
Maybe it's just over the horizon. If you could just make it to the vacation that you have planned in the summer, that would bring you peace. Maybe it's the beach trip ahead. Whatever it is, here's what I want you to know. The people in that crowd had a plan for their peace. And it, did not, it didn't look exactly like Jesus Christ and his plan for their peace. He came to bring peace. He himself is our peace. And the peace that the Pharisees wanted would require him to die. And the peace that Jesus Christ wanted would also require him to die. The peace that they wanted was security with the world around them. The peace that he desired was security with God himself so that the wrath that hangs over everyone who would not believe would be absorbed by Christ on the cross and so that you can walk with great confidence and peace no matter what the circumstances are, whether you're in slavery or not, whether you're delivered or not. The great deliverance is Jesus Christ to God himself, that you might be welcomed to him. Do you know that peace? And that leads me to the second question, what does Christ make of us? Which is the much more important question. Much more important question. Do you worship him? Do you welcome him? Do you receive him as your peace? Dostoevsky said this, It is not as a child that I believe and confess Jesus Christ. My Hosanna is born of a furnace of doubt. Some of you, your worship to him is born in the furnace and the crucible of doubt where you're working it out. He sees that meager faith. He sees it. And he's breathing life into it. And he's welcoming you. For those of you who are wondering, what does Christ make of me? Well, let me tell you this. The only way for you to be made right with him is through faith in Jesus Christ and what he's accomplished on the cross for you. If you are trusting in anything else, if you're trusting in things that you've done that were less bad than the people around you, then you, it will fail. It will not deliver you. It will not bring true peace. If you're trusting alone in what Jesus Christ has done for you, when he looks at you, he sees beloved. He sees his own righteousness placed on you that you could not earn for yourself. He welcomes you to come and dine with him today, demonstrating his love for you while you were still rebellious towards him. He welcomed you in. He demonstrated his love in his death while you were still his enemy. He welcomed you in. And that's the answer to what does Christ make of us? If our trust is holy and completely in him, he looks at you and sees his beloved child. He sees the righteousness of Christ. He welcomes you as his own. If you're trusting, if you're trusting in anything else, he looks at you and weeps over you missing the reality of his visitation. In great sorrow, as he looked at that city, he looks at you pleading to receive him on this day. Receive him today. He's already accomplished our salvation. There's no real question of what do we make of Jesus Christ. It's a question of what does he make of us? And are you trusting in him to deliver you? Have you trusted him with your past? And are you trusting him with your future? Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior to everyone who will believe. Would you guys pray that those in this room who are not yet trusting in him would place their trust in him today? Would you pray that with me? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this good, good gift of your redemption, the good offering of peace that we have before you with God. I pray that you would come today as we hail you as Hosanna the God who saves us.
the one who's able to deliver us. There's so many other things that might draw our attention and our gaze. Father, I pray that today we would see you as the center of it all. The central figure in this narrative of redemption is you, God. Be exalted today in our songs and our singing and our worship. And I pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's stand up and sing to God.